Let's bow our heads, let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much for this beautiful day you've given us. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for your beautiful creation. And thank you that we get to come together in person or join online, whatever it may be. Come together to worship you, but also to hear from you. And Lord, I ask that you, your spirit would speak throughout this time. It'll be your words, Lord God, speaking into our lives. We give this to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many years ago, I had the privilege to do a workshop at a, a winter retreat, and it was a dating relationship workshop. And this was mainly to like from teenagers to young adults, and uh, there were some adults there, and those adults were mainly like the parents of the teenagers, right, to, just to kind of monitor, hear what they were going to be listening to. Uh, but the theme of the workshop was, uh, am I the one? That wasn't the ti- exact title, but the theme of it was, am I the one? Now, many people throughout their lives, they're waiting for the one, right? How many of you are waiting? No, I won't, have you, I won't embarrass you. But how many of you are waiting for the one. Some are searching for the one to lo- different levels and degrees. Some are really searching for the one, and some are casually searching for the one. I don't often hear people talk about preparing themselves for being the one for someone else. So that was the theme of the, the workshop at the time. Because, you know, people often look for partners like they look for a computer or a car, right? You go and you look at the details, you look at the specs, you look at the, all the details. Does it fit my needs? Does it fit my look? How do I look sitting next in that car, Right? And people think about searching for the one very much like searching for a computer, searching for a car, looking for that prepackaged one, right? But how many truly intentionally prepare themselves to be the one for someone else? I've mentioned before, I had the privilege of doing premarital counseling with a number of couples. And I mentioned to you all before, I think, that usually when a couple does premarital counseling, they're already in the process of getting married, right? So the decision's already made, the financial commitments are already made, deposits are made, and so as we go through the thing, the, the premarital counseling, it's already set, right? I mean, there would be tremendous pressure on the couple during the premarital counseling if they all of a sudden kind of felt like, hmm, are we the ones? They feel like there's no turning back, right? That's usually the case. So ideally, if you'd go into premarital counseling, ideally you do it before you make all that commitment. So that way, if you, for some circumstance, say, ah, I didn't know you felt that way. I didn't know you felt that way. Let's hold off and let's work this out. Anyways, most couples, when they enter into marriage, they have this naive optimism about each other, right? Because they're convinced that they are 
the one. So when I go through premarital counseling with him, I walk through very thoroughly all the different issues, the different things that come up, the different dynamics that couples go through in marriage. Now, you can watch a lot of marriages on a screen. You can watch a lot of couples. You could read lots of books. How many of you who are married read books going into marriage? Nobody. One person. Okay, maybe some of you. Right? You can do all those things, but nothing can fully prepare you for the conflicts that may arise than actually going through them. Right? Even the premarital counseling can't fully prepare you for the conflicts that arrive. It's interesting how the honeymoon phase can quickly turn into what happened to the one I married? <laughs> what happened to the one that I thought was going to be the one? That often certainly happens. Last week, I brought up this picture. And it's a picture of a wedding ring on the edge of a finger. And I asked the question, is the wedding ring coming on or is it coming off the finger? And I ended last message with the question of will I, right? That challenging question, will I? Right? We go into marriage saying, I will. But some marriages are at a condition, at a state where they're asking the question, will I? Will I allow the Lord to lead and affect my heart in this marriage, right? Will I be able to forgive my partner, my spouse, as I want God to forgive me? Will I be able to even stay in this marriage, right? This question, will I? Well, answering those questions, so maybe asking those questions, but answering those questions requires Patient, honest, quiet stillness before the Lord. If you find yourself asking some of those questions, it requires patient, quiet stillness before the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, there was a message about being still. Right? That, that word for be still means to let go, relax, refrain, let alone. And if we're asking those questions specifically about a marriage relationship, we need to be able to be still, let alone, and be quiet before the Lord and ask God, can you speak to me about my heart, about these questions I have? Because it takes a humble heart, right? If there's conflict with another person, let alone in a marriage relationship, It takes a lot of humility to be able to let go of your pride, the pride that insists that you are right and the other person is wrong. It takes a lot of humility to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to be still, I'm going to listen, and I want you to speak to me about my heart, about myself. The title of this week's message, or today's message, is Can We... Can we heal and work together? Can we allow the Lord to repair what is broken? Can we forgive each other 
and love each other. Now, for those of you who are just joining us, you haven't been with us, we've been going in Genesis and our, we've been going at a kind of a crawl's pace, I admit. We started this in May and we're still getting through Genesis chapter 3. I hope it's been meaningful for those of you who've been with us. But we just looked at Adam and Eve's sin. And we're looking at how their decision affects us. And even specifically within the marriage relationship. And if you think about it, Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God didn't rise from conflict. They didn't have conflict with each other. We don't see any kind of deliberation, like some kind of argument or back and forth of should we, shouldn't we. They seem to be together in their decision and in their decision to disobey God. They did it, but they did it together. But, you know, I like to speculate things, and, you know, this is not scriptural. This part is not in the Bible, so, you know, let's just, I do this out of amusement. But every once in a while, I kind of speculate about what's not given to us, the information that's not given to us. And when I read this passage, I wonder, what was the conversation like between Adam and Eve after they ate the fruit? After God confronted them? I wonder what that conversation was like. And this is all speculation for my own amusement, okay? So don't quote me on this, all right? This is not your takeaway for the sermon, okay? But I speculate. I wonder if their conversation was anything like conversations today in marriages, right? I picture Adam after they ate of the fruit and after they hid. I picture him kind of just saying, gosh, I knew I shouldn't have listened to you. I should have just stayed away. I should have just hung out with my dog and my monkey friends. Why did I listen to you? You set me up, didn't you? You wanted this, didn't you? This is all your fault. I can picture Eve's response. My fault? My fault? Aren't you the one supposed to take care of me? Isn't, aren't you the one that God told not to eat the fruit? Why didn't you warn me? Weren't you supposed to take care of me? Some, some leader you are. See if I ever listen to you or follow your direction again. Some man of the garden you turned out to be, right? Now this wasn't biblical this is not even apocryphal. This is just my imagination, right? But I wonder, you know, what kind of conversations they had. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. We have no indication of a fractured relationship afterwards. In fact, we don't give much, we don't have much details about their marriage afterwards. We don't have a lesson in marriage life after that. But it leads us to, to, to wonder and think about how their decision reflects on the conflicts we often see in marriage today. Last week, I laid out reasons to believe that God held the man more accountable for their decision, for their disobedience, and that God gave the man or the husband was given a role and responsibility of authority within the relationship. We looked at the different reasons why I say that. We saw that God created the man first. 
This was his intention. This was his design. He created the man first. God commanded Adam directly to not eat of the fruit before he created Eve. So he specified to Adam particularly. God specially designed the woman for the man and brought her to him. We saw that God gave Adam authority to call and name the woman, right? We saw later in chapter 3 that he gives the name Eve, right? So God gives that authority. Why is that so special? Because it's interesting that in the chapter 4 and chapter 1, it's God who has authority to call and to name. But in chapter 2, we see that he gives the man that authority to call the woman and call, name her Eve, right? Anyways, we also saw that God addressed the man first when they sinned, and he also addressed them, him, him last, right? And the last thing we saw that God emphasized that the man was driven out of the garden. So it's interesting, in the narrative, when God forbids them to be in the garden, banishes them from the garden, specifically says the man was driven out of the garden. Now we know that Eve and Adam were banished together. But in the text, it seems that God holds the man with a certain level of accountability and authority, and particularly in the relationship. And we see that there's, this is reinforced when the Lord addressed Eve in verse 16 of chapter 3, when God confronts Adam and Eve after they sinned, right? He says to the woman, he's, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the woman will experience hardship in childbirth and painful labor. But the wife will still desire their husband, even if it means experiencing pain and hardship afterwards, specifically in childbirth. And some of you wives will probably know, well, that's not the only hardship and pain that they'll experience from the husband, right? That may be true. But specifically in understanding what he addressed Eve with, he says, you're going to experience hardship in childbirth, pain in your labor, but your desire will be for your husband. But how do we understand the latter part of it? And he shall rule over you. Make sure I'm in line with that. How do we understand that? And we saw that in chapter 4, verse 7, the next chapter, we'll get to that in two weeks. When God addressed Cain, he says similar things. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So when we see in, these, in one chapter setting apart these two different circumstances, but these same terms being used. The same term being used for desire regarding Eve is the same des- term for desire being used for sin's desire for Cain. And the same term used for he shall rule over you, it's the same term used in chapter 4, but you must master it. So how do we reconcile this? How do we understand this in context of chapter 3? Well, the point is not to equate 
the woman with sin. I just want to make sure we get that clear, right? Because I talk about in studying scripture, you see parallels, and often in parallels, it gives you some insight into understanding context and understanding meaning. So when we put these two verses together to understand this idea, concept of desire and ruling over or mastering over, it's not to equate women with sin. That is not the takeaway. I want to make sure that's clear on that, right? I don't want husbands to say, you know what? You're just like sin. No, 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 that's not the point. What we see here is God likens sin's desire to that of the woman's desire for the man. However, desire shall not have governing authority in either context. And in the context of marriage and in that relationship, the husband is given authority over the wife. Now, I didn't mention this last week. Because not a lot of husbands are very responsible with this passage. I didn't want that to be the takeaway without having the time to explain the role of the wife in the relationship. And I imagine that this is not a favorable verse for women, let alone wives, right? This is not a favorite verse for you women, right? You don't have this written down on a post-it note on your morning window. You know, any of you do that? You write inspirational Bible verses and you put it on your window or on your car dashboard. Any of you have this verse? Any women have this verse? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? You don't have this of, yes, Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Oh, what an inspiration for the day. No, probably not. Husbands don't get any ideas. I don't want to hear about any post-it notes of this verse popping up on people's windows, their dashboards, or the refrigerator, any of those kind of things, right? We wouldn't do that, would we, husbands? But to fully understand The role of the husband, we must remember the role and responsibility of the wife in the relationship. In chapter 2, verse 16, when the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman from the side which had taken from the man and brought her to the man. That word, helper, means help. But that word, that concept for help, it doesn't mean a maid. It doesn't mean a housekeeper. It doesn't mean a cook. It doesn't mean a slave. And I've mentioned a couple times now, actually that word that is used for helper is the same word that is used in the Old Testament to describe the Lord's role to his people of Israel. We see in Exodus chapter 18, Moses saying, the God of my father was my help, same word, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Psalm 33, 18 to 20, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 70, verse 5. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. 
Psalm 115, 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. See, what this word is describing, the role of the Lord, is the Lord is their help. He is their deliverer. He is their shield. He is their protector. This is a role of strength. This is a role that was born out of need. Right? So when God created woman as a suitable helper, it was because it was not good for man to be alone. God especially formed and shaped the woman. And that word for suitable, literally it means what is in front of, corresponding to. I like what this commentator says about this, the word suitable helper. He says, it suggests that what God creates for Adam will correspond to him. Thus the new creation shall be neither a superior nor inferior, but an equal. So God creates woman and the wife for the husband, for the man, for this special role. Not an inferior role, not a role of weakness, but even a role that he would fulfill for his people himself. Some of you may think, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I still don't like the sound of this. I still don't like this idea. Why did God intend it this way? And I thought a lot about this. And actually, I think it's quite beautiful. And you think, oh yeah, you think it's good because you're a man, right? Mm-mm. It's actually quite beautiful. Because he designed the roles of the husband and the wife in such a way that they would both need each other and require both to be selfless. They would both rely on each other and look to help each other and need each other. Both have roles that look to protect each other and complete each other. Some may think, some women may think, I don't need a man to watch over me. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you said that before. I don't need a man to watch over me. Be my leader to watch over me. Some men might think, I don't need a woman to protect me. I can handle myself. I don't need a deliverer, Pastor Mike, let alone from a woman. Can you see how we've let culture often dictate our understanding of things too? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how we've allowed culture to affect our thinking and how we perceive things? So much of our attitudes have been what's been communicated to us from culture, whether it's American culture or even your own native cultures. 
But I'm going to say something, and I've been thinking a lot about this, and I'm going to say it anyways. If you don't want a man to watch over you, then perhaps marriage is not for you. If you don't want a woman to protect your heart and help guard you, then perhaps marriage is not for you. If you want someone who will let you do whatever you want, when you want, how you want, and not question you about what you want, then perhaps you don't have the right understanding of the marriage relationship. When we talk about this, we're not talking about the husband or wife always demanding and telling the other what to do, right? We're not talking about absolute control or dictatorship. Nor does this encapsulate all the roles and responsibilities within the marriage relationship, what the husband has to the wife and the wife to the husband. But each role, both husband and wife, involves submission. Submission to each other. To properly exercise authority, the other person must be willing to submit. To properly protect and guard, the other person must be willing and recognize their need for help and submit. You think, well, how does this relate to marriage relationship? How does it relate to marriage conflicts? And I recognize not all of us are married. And you can apply these concepts to other relationships, certainly. But I think specifically we see this in the marriage relationship. Most marital conflicts involves conflict with desire and control. Right, if you think about it. Most marriage conflicts involves desire and control. What led Adam and Eve to disobey? Desire, right? And control will also be their struggle thereafter. Because with desire often comes conflict with control. Right? When we desire something, we tend to be pretty self-centered. Pretty selfish about our desires, what we want, how we want it, when we want it, all those things. We want things done our way. How many of our marital conflicts come up because one insists to do things a certain way and it conflicts with somebody else? Or the other person wants to control how certain things are done, right? Desire and conflict. So how do we reconcile this conflict of desire and control? Well, the concepts, let me take some water here. The concepts of submission and sacrificial love are at the center of the gospel. And it's at the center of the life of a believer in Christ, right? The two concepts, submission and sacrificial love is at the center of the gospel. What Christ did for us. And that is at the center of a life of a believer. Submission and sacrificial love. We see this theme throughout the New Testament and we see this in Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 32. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's up there on the screen. Ephesians 
Paul's talking to the church. He's talking to all believers here, right? And he says in verse 32, And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, just because Paul doesn't specifically say husbands and wives, it doesn't mean we can be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving to everybody else. But when it comes to your husband or your wife, uh, let's just take it on a case-by-case basis, right? Let's just see. I don't know if it includes my husband. I don't know if it includes my wife. I don't know if you can relate to this. I've seen this, and I've probably done this too, right? Not probably, I have. We can be guilty of being so kind, so tender-hearted, so patient, so forgiving with so many people, right? You go to church, you see a guy opening the door for a woman, don't even know, saying hello, being nice. Oh, can I get you something? Here, let me move this for you. Let me carry this for you. But when they get home, the wife asks for something. He's like, I'm tired. Get it yourself. She's vacuuming. Your feet are up on the table. Can you move your feet? Oh, gosh, you want me to move my feet? We do this. We do this. But it should be our spouse especially that we can do this too, right? We remember these things when we think of other Christians, other believers in Christ. But it should be even more so for our spouses, right? This is not specific to marital relationship, but this is God saying to all believers in Christ, this is how we ought to be to each other. Fast forward to chapter one of verse five, chapter five, verse one. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God. We need to be imitators of Christ to live our life in love. That's not romantic love. But it's God's love. We are to live our life as believers in Christ in God's love. We are to imitate Christ to each other. That is what we're called to do as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. He goes on in verse 21, and be subject to one another. So I'm fast forwarding to verse 21. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Some of you might think, oh, here we go again. I bet you this verse isn't on your window or in your, your mirrors either, right? But most focus is on verses 22 to 24, but they neglect verse 21. In fact, the word when it says be subject, wives be subject to your own husbands, the be subject is not there in the Greek. What it means is that verse 22 is a direct flow from 21, right? 
be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be subject, be subject to one another in Christ. Out in, in the fear of Christ, in honor of Christ, we are to submit to one another, be subject to one another. But Paul continues, wives to your husbands, right? Wives to your husbands. This is a specific reminder for wives to do what may be very difficult to do. There are plenty of marriages in which the husbands make it extremely difficult or near impossible to want to submit to their husbands. There are some marriages that makes it, the husbands make it very difficult or near impossible to ha- expect the wife to want to put her needs or the husband's needs before her needs. Perhaps because the husband has violated a trust or whatever it may be. But submit here does not mean they must be ordered around and do whatever is being told. That's not the issue. That's not the point of submission here. We are to put others before ourselves. And this charge is not exclusive to wives. Husbands are not exempt from this. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to subject to one another in the fear of Christ. In honor of what Christ has done for us, we are to put others before ourselves. Be willing to honor others before ourselves. But husbands and wives, if wives are to properly carry out their God-given role as helper and protector for their husbands, husbands will need to submit as well. Because husbands have a specific reminder here in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. If a guy's going out to the gym to get his body in shape, take care of him, make sure he gets on a diet, but goes home and treats his wife like a slave... Or lesser than. That's, that's not the role of the husband. Nevertheless, verse 33, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife or let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. This is why I say husbands, I believe have a higher accountability, a degree of accountability. Because husbands, if you like the idea of authority, if you like the idea of having leadership, you need to come to grips with that responsibility. Willing to accept the responsibility that comes with it. And that is to love your wives as Christ loves us. Husbands, love your wives with the same importance as it is to be loved. Right? 
And if we're living as we ought to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we should have no problem with this. Because that's how we ought to be as brothers and sisters in Christ, to submit to one another, to love one another, to sacrifice for one another. If husbands are loving their wives and upholding them with honor, wives shouldn't have a problem with this concept of submission, right? And if wives are respecting their husbands, husbands should not have a problem with loving their wives. But for all this to work out, for all this to happen, you need both to mutually work together. Both need to be committed equally to this. They need to be mutually committed to help each other, to serve each other, to protect each other. I cannot tell you how many times, you know, I I see one of the things that I've learned, the difficulties I've had in the past and in moments. Jamie will see things, that's my wife, Jamie will see things that I don't see. And she'll warn me about something to protect my heart, to protect me. And my pride often has led, oh, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. Don't worry. It's okay. And I deny her that role and that responsibility to watch over me, to protect me, and I let my pride get in the way. See, in order for this beautiful relationship to work, both parties need to be mutually committed. But both need to be committed to the love of God first and foremost. You need the love of God in your relationship and in your own life. I think we live, I'm almost done here. We live in a culture of icons. We prop up people to be icons in our culture, right? People are made to be icons. They're these representations of beauty, of success, popularity, purpose, whatever it is. And we prop people up and we look to these people. And so for some people, they look at these images of people and they represent happiness. They represent beauty. They look to them and say, man, I wish I was like this person. Or man, I wish I had their life. Why can't I have this person or someone like them? Some people enter marriages and they make their future spouse their icon. That if I marry this person, this person is going to bring me happiness. This person is going to bring me fulfillment. This person is going to bring me purpose. And when we set people up to be these icons of these things, we set, them, we set ourselves up for disappointment and we set them up for failure. Because a lot of people enter marriages and they think their spouse is going to give them that only Christ can give them. Our spouse can help us, 
can protect us, can love us, but they're not a replacement for Jesus. Jesus is the inspiration for our marriage relationship. And for our, relation, for our marriage relationship to be healthy and to work, we need the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts to abide in us as we abide in Christ. We need our relationship with Christ to be healthy for our marriages to be healthy. Because see, when we have a relationship with Christ, we learn love in our relationship with Christ, right? We learn what it's like to receive God's love. We know we learn what God's love looks like. We learn submission in our relationship with Christ. That we have to submit to God. We submit to the Father. We submit to Christ. And we submit to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we learn sacrificial love. Through Christ, we know what it means to love sacrificially. Because he is our model. And if our relationship with Christ is growing, then in our marriages, we will learn mutual love. If both spouses are committed to their relationship with Christ, then they will learn that they can show love mutually. They can have mutual submission to one another. And they can have mutual sacrifice. For all this to work, for the marriage relationship to be healthy and beautiful as God intended, both parties have to be committed to each other, to serve each other, to protect each other, to love each other, in order for it to work. The title of this message was, Can We? And I'll end with this picture. If you're listening, it's a picture of two hands extending towards each other. But that's the question in the picture. Are these two hands coming together or are they coming apart? It's amazing if you think about the collection of moments that come into play that either can bring two hands together or can bring them apart. It could be a single moment. It could be a collection of moments. Can we? Can we make it work? Can we get along? Can we forgive each other? Can we submit to one another? Can we love each other as God loves us? We covered divorce last week. And, um, you know, a lot of people are letting, lead, lead that way. They talk about their love and like, you know, I just don't love the person anymore. And they look at romantic love. The love is not there anymore. And I would say, I would say that couple understand. I think the first step, I understand you can't just fall back in love with somebody. But as a couple, can we say, can we at least love each other as God asks of us as brothers and sisters in Christ? And again, I'm talking to two believers in Christ. Can we start off again with just loving each other with God's love first and see where that takes us?
because we're not exempt from that, regardless of the relationship we have. We're subject to God's love. Can we at least get back to that and see where it goes from there? Can we help each other be the one we need? Can we help each other be the one that we need from each other? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and Lord, we recognize we can be pretty prideful beings. We can be pretty selfish, self-centered, easily deceived, easily distracted. And sometimes, Lord, it's hard to see another person, to see their needs before our own, or even to love when it's hard to love. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would first and foremost submit ourselves to you, Lord God, Say, Lord, help me to love as you love us. Help me to be patient as you're patient with us. Help me to forgive as you forgive us. And Lord, I pray for marriages here. I do not believe the world is looking out for our marriages, Lord. I do not believe the enemy wants to see our marriages thrive, our families thrive, and to know you and to be godly before you. And certainly our pridefulness gets in the way. We experience conflicts. Lord, help us. Lord, I do pray if there needs to be reconciling, that there will be reconciliation. I pray if there needs to be healing, there will need to be healing, that healing will happen, forgiveness will happen. I pray for this, Lord. And this is beyond marriages and any relationship with it's a parent and a child, a brother and a sister, Whatever it may be, may we desire these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.